a good word. So we got more. Uh, I just, before our brother comes and teaches, I do want to mention this too, because this is coming up in like two, three weeks, three weeks, I think. But on Wednesday night, October 1st, you see these in your uh, programs. There's 10 days of prayer um, that the church is doing here in Connecticut. Multiple churches are participating and New River's part of it. But um, we're going to be on October 1st, Wednesday night, enjoying a joint night of worship with Manchester Church of the Nazarene, River of Life, and other local churches. And if you remember, we did this together last year, uh, the three churches, and it was one of the best nights of my whole life. I mean, it's awesome. There's just nothing like uh, worshiping Jesus, you know, with uh, the body of Christ. It's so good. So mark that. That's a Wednesday night, Wednesday night. And it's going to be at the Church of the Nazarene, not here, because last year we were too full. And they have a bigger sanctuary, and they have a bigger parking lot, and so they're better able to suit the crowd. Um, so just... Uh, plan on that we're going to have it's like the battle of the worship teams um, not really but um, they're there were the Manchester Church of the Nazarene worship team and the River of Life worship team will be leading us this year last year it was our worship team and the Nazarene worship team but it's going to be awesome so I want to introduce to you my friend and uh, my my boss technically but uh, Reverend Tom Flanders is our district superintendent here in New England um, you know, New River is part of a denomination called the Christian Missionary Alliance, and we're part specifically of the New England District of the Christian Missionary Alliance. And uh, as such, Reverend Flanders oversees all the Alliance churches in our district. And there's a little over 60 Alliance churches that are under his um, care, and ours being one of them. And as a church, we've benefited several times. I can tell you story after story of the blessing that is ours as a church to be a part of the New England District of the Christian Missionary Alliance. So uh, we've got a good word this morning and a good man bringing it. I really um, have known Tom for 20, well, since college. It's been a long time. And uh, I'm just very thankful for his ministry and the privilege to be able to call my district superintendent my friend, which is kind of a nice blessing too. So Tom, you want to come? Yeah, you got to give them the warm New River welcome. We're good. That's a thumb. That's a thumbs up. It's working. Well, thanks, Doug. Um, hey, if you have a Bible this morning, would you find your way to Psalm eighty-nine and just hold your place there? We'll get to it in a second. Psalm 89. Uh, I think the last time that I was here uh, and spoke at the church was when you were still back in the school, so I don't know whether it's been a couple of years or what it's been. Um, when you travel to a lot of churches over six states, uh, you lose track of where you've been and what state you're even in some days. But I know I'm here today, and that's the important thing. Um, my wife would love to be here. She was able to be here for the a service last evening, but she's home uh, this morning. And uh, just by way of reminder. I'm sorry, can I interrupt you? Sure. Okay. I can only do it because it's my job. Yeah. But when you mentioned last night, I totally forgot. We had somebody get saved last night on a Saturday night. Yeah. That was awesome. That was great. I couldn't let that pass. No, don't let it pass. And yeah. Then, and then it was just awesome. And, uh, and in fact, you should know that in the month of September, you see four people on a Saturday night. 
You can come up anytime. It's all right. It's all right. Uh, yeah, Chris and I have been married for 28 years. We have three children. Again, uh, if I uh, gave you the story the last time I was here, it's only because uh, maybe you're new or I forgot. But we have a daughter who's 25. She's uh, married to her high school sweetheart. They live in downtown Chicago. We have a son who's a senior in college, and then we have an 18-year-old son. Uh, and our 18-year-old um, son is profoundly autistic with a number of other disabilities. And so my wife was able to be here with us last evening, but she's home with him uh, today because we had care for him last evening. And so she would love to be here. Um, that's a little bit about my family, and maybe, um, like you, uh, I, I can tell you today that I grew up in um, a non-Christian, what I would even say was a rather irreligious home. And it was at the age of 18 that my now wife and her family introduced me to Jesus. And her dad was a pastor, and then I quickly discovered that if I was interested in his daughter, she came with Jesus. And so I better be interested in Jesus as well. But I confess that initially I was more interested in her than I was in Jesus. But uh, over uh, the years, obviously, I have my own experience with the Lord, and it has brought me to this place even today. Um, but growing up uh, in a non-Christian, rather irreligious home, I was still taught about certain things that were important if you were going to be a productive, contributing member of society. Things you do right. And one of the things that my family taught me was about the importance of faithfulness and commitment. That was modeled largely by my grandparents. Uh, my grandfather was the kind of person who said, Tom, if you give somebody your word, you should keep it. And uh, earlier this year, I uh, buried my grandfather first, and about two and a half weeks later, my grandmother. They both passed uh, early in this year. And so I drove back to the area where we're from originally, which is upstate New York, out in the country, there were more cows than people in our hometown. And uh, so I went back there, and as I was revisiting their story in anticipation of giving the eulogy at each of their memorial services, I was reminded of just how faithful they were as people. Not particularly religious, though later in their years I was able to share the gospel with them, and they were able to come to faith in Christ. Until uh, just moments before she passed, my grandmother looked at me, uh, on her bed, and she said, Tom, tell the Lord if he's not going to heal me, he can now take me home. Brings great comfort to you to know that a person has come to that place where they have just resigned their both life and eternity into the hands of a faithful God. But while we were not particularly religious people, uh, my grandparents did model faithfulness. At the time that they passed, they'd been married for 56 years. And I'm convinced it would have been longer, except for that my grandfather was my grandmother's second husband. Her first husband had contracted an illness and passed away, leaving her to raise their seven children, five boys and two girls, one of whom was my mother. There was no arrangements, my grandmother would tell me years later, no life insurance, nothing of the sort. And so in an effort to sort of raise the kids and take care of the family, she realized they had to move off of the small farm that they lived on outside of town they had to move into town where the kids could walk to school and get to their athletic contests and all that stuff. And she took a job at a local manufacturing facility working the third shift. So she would work all night, tell the older kids to make sure that the younger kids behaved themselves, stayed in bed, and didn't leave the house all night long. And she would be back in the morning to get them out of bed, make sure they were ready for school, give them breakfast, pack their lunch, 
send them off. She would clean up the house, get a, a couple hours of sleep in the afternoon, be ready when they came back home from school to make sure that they had their homework, did their laundry, gave them dinner, and got them all ready for bed. And if she could, she'd try to go to one of the boys' games to watch them. And then she would go off to work at night, work all night, and go back and do that routine, which she did for many years. In an effort to move into an area closer to the school, she got uh, in contact with somebody at work uh, her place of employment and said I need to live closer to the school and so I'm looking to rent a house and that was a daunting prospect for anybody who owned a property and said I'll rent to a single mom with seven children who knew if she'd ever really be able to pay the rent but there was a man at this manufacturing facility who saw her notice on the bulletin board contacted her and said I'll rent you this house he would later become her husband and my grandfather after a couple of years the relationship became romantic until one day he proposed to my grandmother and said, hey, would you become my wife? And she said, you do realize that I have seven children, right? She had sort of resigned herself to the fact that no man in his right mind would ever want to marry her with her brood. But he did. At his memorial, my aunts and uncles and my mother stood up and said this, from the day that he said, I do to mom, he became our father and we never questioned ever once again that he was dad. He was our dad, and in his passing, he left a rather significant inheritance that nobody would have suspected that he had. Who do you think he left it to? Those seven children, one of whom has passed away. My uncle passed away a couple of years ago, and so that inheritance went on to his children. He just modeled faithfulness in that way. In another way, uh, he modeled faithfulness, as did my grandmother. They retired decades later from that same manufacturing facility that they met at years before. They both walked out on the same day in their mid-60s and said, you know what, we're going to walk into these final years of our lives together. And I just marvel when I think that they stayed employed at the same place all of those years. Different corporations owned the facility over their span of employment there, but they just stayed there. They were faithful to their employer. In other ways, they modeled faithfulness that was just sort of an example to all of us. My grandfather started a carpool, and um, he just had this carpool for years where he would transport people that either didn't have vehicles or just uh, needed a ride into work. And so for I don't know how many years, more years than I can remember, he would meet people at the same place every uh, morning, Monday through Friday, early in the morning, give them a ride to work, and he'd be waiting for them in the parking lot when they got out of work, and he'd give them a ride back home. Some people never had to buy a car, a second car for their family or whatever, because they knew they could count on him to get their ride back and forth to work every year. He just sort of modeled faithfulness. And uh, even though they were not particularly Christian people, I always saw that they took their vows, their marriage vows, very seriously, for better, for worse, till death do us part. I never had any question but that my grandparents would die married to one another just never passed through my mind that they, they wouldn't live out the rest of their life together. In the later years of my grandfather's life, he had the onset of dementia, and then it became very significant. And it had all of the things that you can imagine that would come with that disease. He forgot uh, our names, and we would visit with him, and there would just be sort of this stare off into space, and he would smile on occasion. And it got so bad that he finally even forgot who my grandmother was and would confuse her at times with his mother. A couple of years ago, I called my grandmother up. I was back in upstate New York. And I said, Graham, I'd like to come over for lunch. And uh, so I'm going to go to McDonald's, get us something for lunch. And she was sort of shut in the house at that point. And I said, I'll bring you something to eat. 
I'll grab us a couple of salads or something. She said, salad, get me a Big Mac. And so I did, I figured in your mid 80s, if you wanna eat a Big Mac, go for it. And so she you know, said, bring me a Big Mac. She had a Big Mac, I had a salad, we sat there. And uh, that day she told me a little bit of her story and her heart was kind of breaking because as my grandfather was slipping into dementia, in a rather lucid moment, one day when they were talking, she made him this promise. She said, Lester, I will never put you in a nursing home. This is where we've lived our life together, and we're going to live out our life right here together. I'm going to take care of you until I can't do so anymore, or I'm not here to do so. But the day came when she could no longer keep that promise. Grandpa had stopped eating the way that was typical, and one morning she tried to get him out of bed, and she couldn't. So she called my aunt to come over and help her, and the two of them couldn't get him out of bed. And then they called my uncle, who's a large man, and, and they said, hey, come help us. And the three of them could not get him out of bed. And so they called the EMTs, who transported my grandfather to a hospital where he was fed intravenously, and then ultimately transferred to an extended care facility where he lived out the rest of his life. On this particular day when we were having lunch, it was breaking my grandmother's heart because she said, Tom, I promised him I would never put him in a nursing home. He was so good and faithful and loving and caring towards me and the kids, but I just wanted to keep my word. I said, for better, for worse, till death do us part. And we all sort of comforted my grandmother in these moments where she was talking about how she felt that she just hadn't been able to keep her promise. But one day she called those of us in the family that she was closest to and sort of surprised us. She said, listen, I've made a decision. She said, I've signed over the house and everything to your aunt and your uncle, who are sort of the two responsible to execute final affairs for us. I found out that this facility, this nursing home where dad lives, they got an open bed two doors down, and I'm going over there to live. I'm leaving Thursday. I'm leaving behind the home. I'm leaving behind everything. I'm going to go over there and live the rest of my life with the man that I loved who promised himself to me and to our family, and I'm going to go be next to him. And she did that. She gave those nurses a run for their money about how you take care of my grandfather. They told me later. They said she didn't let us off the hook. You know, if he needed something, she was there, and that was grandma. That was just kind of what she was going to do. As I was rehearsing uh, a bit of my family's history in anticipation of those eulogies earlier this year, I was reminded again of how my grandparents had taught me about the importance of commitment and faithfulness and keeping your word. But I was also reminded as I heard that story and heard her pain that, that human faithfulness, as well-intentioned as it may be, has limits. My grandmother intended to keep that promise to my grandfather until the day that she died. And the best she could, she did. But we make all sorts of promises. We live in a society where all kinds of promises are made every day. There will be promises made today that people, in the moment that they speak them, intend to keep them. But there will be just as many promises, covenants, broken today as there will be those that are part of a society whose fabric is sort of fractured at so many levels that if you don't ultimately get back to God to undertake the whole notion of faithfulness, you could be left to wonder, is there really anything, you know, is there really any merit to this whole notion of making a promise or being faithful or keeping your word or upholding your commitments, be it to a man, between a man and a woman, or an employee to an employer, or vice versa, or even to a church, a friend, a neighborhood, or a parent to a child, or vice versa. 
because we live in a society where faithfulness is at a premium because most of what we see today are the effects of unfaithfulness. And so um, I was brought back to this whole notion of faithfulness. And in an effort to understand its origin and what it's all about, I found my way to Psalm 89. And I want to read it for you here this morning, just the first eight verses. So if you're there and you would turn to it, I'd appreciate it. I'll read from the New International Version. But the sentiment is the same regardless of your particular version. Psalm 89, verses 1 through 8, uh, read this way. The psalmist says, I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. I love that. Not for a little while, not when things are really good. I'm going to sing of his incredible love forever. And with this mouth that I have, I'm going to make your faithfulness known through all generations. I will declare that your love stands firm forever, that you've established your faithfulness in heaven itself. You said this, I've made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. Verse 5. The heavens praise your wonders, Lord, your faithfulness too in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies above can compare with the Lord? Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? In the council of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. Who is like you, Lord God Almighty? You, Lord, are mighty and your faithfulness surrounds you. The Psalms are basically literary pieces. It's a collection of, of writings that are about the human experience and the character, nature, and workings of God. And most of the time when we think of a literary piece, we think of either a song or a classic or a piece of poetry, something we read for pleasure. And the Psalms can be very pleasurable and comforting and encouraging to read. When you are in a difficult spot in life, folks will often say to you, why don't you read the Psalms. I was comforted this morning, were you not, when, when Doug read Psalm 23? I just said over in my head as he was reading that particular Psalm, is it really possible, God, that I would want for nothing? That's an incredible promise. That I can wake up today and say, I want for nothing. I have everything I could ever have need of. I don't have a Mercedes, but I don't need a Mercedes. I don't have a Range Rover. I don't have a mansion somewhere. But I don't have need of anything like that. But whatever I have need of, I'm comforted to know that God is there to supply. I really want for nothing. The Psalms are comforting. But this particular Psalm, as comforting as it is, is actually what the psalmist or what Hebrew scholars refer to as a maskil. In fact, that word may be at the beginning of this particular psalm in your Bible. M-A-S-K-I-L is sort of the English transliteration. And the purpose of a maskil was, yes, to comfort you and to speak to you, but it was also to be instructed. So on this particular psalm, the writer is trying to teach any of his hearers something significant. And the theme that he teaches on here is the faithfulness of God. In fact, in the eight verses that we've read, the idea or notion of faithfulness, whether it's the actual word that's used or some other set of words that communicate the same sentiment, the idea of faithfulness is communicated at least that many times. So it's on nearly every line. I guess if there's a place, if there's a place for redundancy in literature, it's when you're talking about the faithfulness of God. 
I mean, in a lot of my college papers, the professor would write in the margin, this is redundant. You don't need to say on page four what you've already said on page two. But the psalmist thinks that this whole topic about the faithfulness of God is so important that you and I should not miss it. And if he says one significant thing about the faithfulness of God, it's this, that the origin of this whole idea of faithfulness, it, it finds itself with God ultimately. In fact, he says this, that when the council of the holy ones and all the inhabitants of heaven pause and they look at God, they see him surrounded by faithfulness. Because it's just who he is. It's his character. He's faithful unyieldingly so. He's just faithful. And so whenever they gaze upon God, they are ultimately brought to see his faithfulness. And whenever they contemplate the notion of faithfulness, they are ultimately brought back to see God. So while I grew up in a religious home, but where faithfulness was modeled, if I were to extrapolate that whole notion of faithfulness and just take it all the way out and contemplate it to its end, I would ultimately be brought to see God. But if I only think about it so far, if I only think about human faithfulness, I would either see the broken promises of the society of which we are a part, or I would see that there are people even as well-intentioned as my grandmother who made a promise to my grandfather that seemed incredibly noble but was unable to keep it. And I would lose heart. Because as good as we may be, the truth of the matter is, is we're never as good as we should be. Right? We're good. We're just not as good as we should be. We intend good things, but we're not able always to keep our promise. But the psalmist says this, acknowledging human frailty, but God, he is infinitely faithful. His faithfulness is without question. That's what he says. But the truth of the matter, friends, is this. That as human beings, we sometimes have questions about the faithfulness of God. We don't usually voice them loud in the company of people like this in, in a sanctuary, but the truth is is we do have questions about the faithfulness of God. In fact, in reality, if we were to be entirely honest, we would say sometimes we question the faithfulness of God. Sometimes outright we question the faithfulness of God. And just so you don't think we're going to get ourselves in trouble with God here this morning, be comforted by the fact that Really, that's actually what's happening here in Psalm 89. If you are familiar or become familiar with this particular text, you'll find that the second two-thirds of Psalm 89 are words of great sorrow on the part of the psalmist. He's actually wondering a bit about the faithfulness of God. In fact, if you caught it, you'll see that he does some of his wondering aloud even in the opening verses that we read here. Go back to verses 3 
and four, if you will. Here it is, the psalmist, after verses one and two, which are just resounding verses about the goodness, faithfulness, and love of God, where you should almost insert an amen at the end of those particular verses. Then you get to verse three, where the psalmist is speaking back to God, reminding him, it seems, of what he has said at some point in the past. You said this, God. I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your line forever, and I will make your throne firm through all generations. Let me sort of lend some context to what's happened at this particular time or what has transpired previously that the psalmist is writing about. At the time that he writes the 89th Psalm, or he writes about uh, the experience he's reflecting upon, and so he sort of puts his uh, feelings to paper for Psalm 89. It is an incredibly dark time in the history of Israel. A band of marauders, the enemies, have come in and they have desecrated the temple. This place that has been consecrated to the Lord and has been decorated with gold and just in an incredibly ornate way has been desecrated, robbed, and left open for ruin. They have a young king. He has been captured and carried away. And tens of thousands of Israelites have been taken off into forced hard labor. It is an incredibly dark time in the history of Israel. And the psalmist looking upon the desolation of this particular time in human history or in the history of Israel, and he feels compelled to remind God of his promises to faithfulness. We read it in verses 3 and 4. If we were to put it in our vernacular, we would probably have said something like this. You made a covenant with us, Lord. A covenant. It wasn't a passing remark where you said, hey, you know, if I can ever do something for you, let me know. It was a promise. And this is what you said. The line of our forefather David and your servant would endure forever. You said this. We're going to have a throne through every generation. It never will be that we don't have someone on the throne of your chosen people in this world. Look around, though, God. Do you not see what's happening? nothing. It seems, it seems there will be no one left. We just thought it was going to be different in light of the promise that you made. Just out of curiosity, are you going to do something about this? We're, we're wondering. The truth of the matter is, is that the circumstances of life can bring you to a place like that, can't they? And when they do, deep questions surface from within you. Questions that, you know, you can certainly answer with scriptural truth. I know God has a purpose. I know that all things work together for those who love God and have been called according to his purpose. Not some things, all things, right? Not just the things I enjoy, every single thing. 
But the questions do surface, and they surface for the psalmist as much as they do for modern people. And in a strange sort of way, the psalmist actually answers the questions that rise in circumstances or dark days like this. And the first question that he answers, it's found here in verses 9, 10, 11, 12, and beyond. And you can sort of hold your finger there. But the first questions that he answers, that he answers, the first of those questions is this one. Can God really do something about my situation? He's really asking, is God really sovereign? Does he really have power to just speak into the circumstances of this world? Or does he involve himself any longer? Or is the deist right? That God just sort of spoke everything into existence. And then, you know, like a Harlem Globetrotter, he put the globe on his finger and he just gave it a spin and said, well, let's see what happens there. Or does God interrupt the normal course of events and involve himself in the affairs of your life and mine or in the affairs of human history? Can God do something about my situation? And he answers the question, in, starting in verse 9. Look at what he says. He says, you, God, you rule over the surging sea. When those waves mount up, you still them. You crushed Rahab, the great prostitute, like one of the slain. With your strong arm, you scattered all of your enemies. The heavens, they're yours. The earth is yours. You founded the world and everything that's in it. You created the north and the south, Tabor and Hermon. They sing for joy at your name. Your arm is endowed with power. Your hand is strong. Your right hand is exalted. The question is coming forth in the mind and heart of the psalmist. And whether he ever spoke it aloud or not, we don't know. But he answers the question by doing an honest review of his days are dark right now, Lord. Nobody, nobody makes their pilgrims pilgrimage to the temple any longer. It just lays in ruin. Our families have been captured and carried off. We don't even have a king. Uh, it doesn't look like the stuff that you were doing is going to come to fruition or that you promised your covenant will be kept. In an effort to answer that question and not just suppress it and pretend that that human sentiment is not very real, the psalmist does something that is critical in his darkest hour. He acknowledges his circumstance, but he turns his gaze away from this present set of circumstances long enough to look to the past. And he does an honest review of God's faithfulness him and to these people at points along the way. No, God, there was a surging, raging sea, and those waves threatened to come ashore and to sweep us away, but you stilled them. Remember Jesus in the boat with the disciples, the raging storm on the Sea of Galilee, and they wonder, are you going to wake up and take care of this, or are we going to drown? And he stands up and says, what? Peace, be still. And they marvel that even the wind and the waves obey him. No, we've had enemies in the past. God, they've come against us, but you crushed them. By the whole world, everything that's happening down here belongs to you. Your arm is incredibly strong. It's endowed with great power. You see, the truth of the matter is, friends, is that sometimes in the midst of your most desperate moment, you have to, as difficult as it is, you have to find a way to look away from that circumstance look in the past because you will say 
No, I have seen the faithfulness of God to you. Remember when you became a Christian? Or when you first realized that God wanted to be personally involved with you, whether you were brought up in a Christian home or not, somebody just said to you, hey, here's what I would say to you. Read the Bible, pray, go to church, stay with Christian people, and if you have a problem, talk to the Lord about it and see what he'll do. It was just that simple. Read the Bible, pray, go to church, stay with Christian people, you know, who can help you grow in your faith as you're becoming a follower of Jesus. And if you have trouble, just pray and ask God to do something. You were just naive enough to take that person's advice and just practice that. And as I say that, I can think of just numerous times where I just did that. I just prayed. And God did something that I could never explain except for that that was God. But in your deepest, darkest moments in life, that darkness sort of threatens to veil our perspective on God's past faithfulness. Can God do something? We all know here that he can. He is indeed sovereign. Amen? But we lose perspective. We need to look back at his faithfulness, be reminded of it, and say, he has done it there. He's no less faithful today. He's ever been as powerful now as he has been in the past has a purpose now as he had back then and maybe all of those experiences were preparation for a moment like this where in my most difficult day I would still choose to trust Jesus and not lose myself can he do something he has done something and he will there's a second question that sort of surfaces on the part of the psalmist here and it's this one not just can he do something but it's this is God really good and does he love Is he good and does he love me? Jump down to verse 14. I happen to believe that, you know, Scripture is divinely inspired. It comes to us communicated from God. And it's not just the particular words, but sometimes the very order of words that uh, are important for us to, to, um, to see. Verse 14 reads this. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Did you catch it? The foundation of the throne of God are righteousness and justice. And love and faithfulness go before you. So I think it is with some purpose here that in this particular verse, the words righteousness and justice precede the words love and faithfulness. Here's what I've discovered. Before you can ever be convinced in your difficult hour that God is indeed faithful and loving, that he's deeply and intimately involved in the circumstances of your life, and that you can trust him, before you can ever be convinced of just how faithful and loving he is, you first have to be convinced. God's ways are right and just. Whatever sovereignty allows in your life or mine is not indiscriminate. It is for your benefit, the benefit of others, and ultimately the glory of his name. Remember Lazarus? Jesus finally arrives on the scene. It seems it's, you know, a day late. And they say, if you had been here, he would not have died this one was for a greater motive. It's not old hat, but they knew that Jesus could heal the sick. They'd seen that. The question that remained at that moment, shortly before the crucifixion, is can Jesus really raise people from the dead? So I let you suffer this illness, and I let your brother see the grave so that I could show you and everybody else I can conquer sickness and what is I don't always know the reason behind
behind why God allows what he allows. I don't know why we have a son who is profoundly disabled. I don't know why one of my close friends received yesterday the news that his 18-year-old son, who was a college freshman, was just diagnosed with acute leukemia and started treatment yesterday and will spend six weeks in the hospital. I don't know why all of these things happen. But I do know this, until you come to believe that whatever God allows in his sovereignty, whatever ways he allows, not in any way diminishing his involvement to heal or to make things right, but until you believe that his ways are right and that his character is just, you will always think you have a better way than the one that God ordains. And if you do, that posture will rob you from being able to receive his love and his care and his mercy. See, love and faithfulness go before him, but they do not precede the very foundation of God's throne, which is righteousness and justice. The ways of the Lord are right and just. Amen? And he is able to do whatever he desires. He can speak and it happens. Here's the final question that's sort of answered in Psalm 89 and surfaces from the heart of the psalmist. And I'll just put it in plain language. Really the question that he's, he's sort of answering at this point. Does God really know what he's doing? Does he actually have a plan? I mean, or is the deist wrong and God involves himself with this spinning globe, but, you know, in, in, without great purpose? Does God know what he's doing? But the psalmist says this, when the council of heaven convenes and everybody looks around, God is the most revered one present. Nobody compares to him. He's more awesome, he says, than everyone else, and he has more wisdom than anyone there possesses. I'm comforted by that. Jenny Salt, in one of her talks, tells the following story. She says, a few years ago, there was an ad on television that started like this, quote, there was a woman sitting in a car. She's minding her own business. And suddenly this man comes out of the blue, rips open the door, grabs her, and pulls her out of the car very roughly. And it looks like he's attacking her, and we look on in horror. And then the camera pulls back. And we see that the car is actually on fire, but the woman didn't know it. The man wasn't assaulting the woman. He was rescuing her. And the ad finishes by saying, you need the bigger picture. Channel 10 News gives you the bigger picture. <laughs> it's very obvious, friends. But I need the reminder, and I suspect you may as well from time to time. God has a vantage point that I do not have. His ways indeed are higher than knows things that I do not know. And because it is higher than my perspective and my vantage point, he sees how things converge in both time and history to accomplish what he's doing. It's eternal, so he sees how what's going on right now in your life affects forever. And forever is more important than history. It can be very difficult to hold this perspective this side of heaven 
I said to you earlier, the inhabitants of heaven have the blessing of being in the presence of God and seeing that whenever they contemplate the notion of faithfulness, they're brought back to see God. And whenever they see God, they see faithfulness because he's surrounded by it. They're inseparable. The challenge for you and me is to maintain that perspective as much and as often as possible, all the while having the Lord God. In a society that doesn't see that. That's the challenge that rests for you and me. It's why the psalmist tells us in time you'll be brought into the fullness of God's presence. It's not that God is not faithful today and that he cannot do whatever he desires to do. Every member of my family has experienced divine, miraculous healing, myself included. But when our son was born with difficulty, we prayed and exercised every bit as much faith in his circumstance as we did in all of those God said, my grace will prove sufficient. And the truth of the matter is, as we've learned more about God and grace through that particular set of circumstances than we have through any other set in our life or our So God, can he do something? Yes. Is he faithful? Absolutely. He misses nothing in my life or yours. He attends to everything. But the promise of no more tears, absolutely no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering, is for what lies beyond this life and not simply for what lies ahead in death. So if you question God's faithfulness every time you pray, wish, hope for something to be one way and you don't receive an answer to the prayer that you'd raise to heaven, if you question his faithfulness, I know this, you will not grow in your ability to trust him. Last night, walking into the evening service, I got a text message from my son. I said to you earlier, he's a senior in college. Text message, you know, most of the time when you get a text message from a college student, um, it's because they need something, right? And he texted me a message that went something like this. He goes, Dad, um, I know I shouldn't be, but I'm getting a little nervous because my account is getting a little low, and I don't have as much money in the bank as I thought I would have at this point. This summer, he'd come up with this ingenious idea because whenever he was you know, needing some money in the past, we'd either send him a check or whatever. He didn't even know what a check was. You know, he's 21. You know, everything's electronic. And we said, hey, well, uh, we'll send you a check or we'll send you a money order. You can cash it right at the post office on the campus. There's a money order. What's that? So this summer, he came up with this ingenious idea. He said, Dad, I found out that at Bank of America, I can link my account to your account. And I think this is a better arrangement. <laughs> he said, um, and so we went to the bank, and sure enough, but I always knew, well, the, you know, the safety net for me was he's not getting my password. Right? So after we did it, um, he said, now, is there any chance you're going to give me your password? I said, uh-uh. Nah, I love you, but you're not getting my password. I told him, I said, I don't even give the password to your mother. No, I'm only joking text message ended with this. He goes, I know I shouldn't be nervous, but I just was a little bit. But this is what he said, but I know I can trust you to take care of me. I said to my wife, I don't know if he was playing on my emotions, and if he did, it worked. But probably what he's realized is, no, when, when, when I need something, 
I'd call my dad. Now, I wish I didn't have to give him money. But I told him, I texted him back, I said, I'll put some money in your account this week. I'll text you when I do. I said, oh, thanks, Dad. I said to my wife as we were driving home last night, I said, you know, it just brings great pleasure to the heart of a father when a child says, I know I can trust you, Dad. And I know in time he's going to transfer that trust fully onto God himself, especially when I tell him, no more money. But I absolutely believe this. It has to bring great pleasure to the heart of God, your Father, this morning. When a little while ago, we were encouraged to just take a moment of silent prayer and just tell God whatever we have need of. Maybe you needed a few bucks. Maybe you needed something more significant. You needed to touch your body, touch your relationship, touch your home, touch your place of work. Just touch you because you feel like you're dead inside and the Spirit hasn't moved inside you in a long time. And there was a twinge of his presence to remind you. It brings him great pleasure when you say, Dad, I know I can trust you for sure. So I want to encourage you to do that, but I want to leave you with what I think is true about this psalm. I actually don't think the psalm was written in the midst of those very dark days in the history of Israel. I've come to believe that Psalm 89, though I can't nail down the date with all of my research, was written at a later time, which has led me to this conclusion. Psalm 89, these are the words of an old man. An old man. Because he says this. Later he says, I have learned acclaim you in the assembly of the holy ones, to tell and to tout your faithfulness. I've learned that. 21-year-old college senior has a lot to learn. Amen, as did I. But later on down the road, if you stay this path and you continue to trust God, you will Maybe you're learning it. I know I am. And I believe it also would encourage the psalmist, if he's looking on this morning, to know that all these generations later, we're still talking about the things that he put down for us to read. That in spite of these circumstances, we have learned God is yet faithful. Amen? Father, thank you so much for the reminder that comes from Holy Scripture that we are to trust you in every circumstance, every hour, every moment of life. I want to trust you along with people here today who have come to a place of just needing to see that you are aware and involved in their circumstance. You can't get a group this size together and not have people who have been touched in some difficult ways as a result of living in a world that is under a curse. 
But I thank you that that curse is not upon us as children of God. And I thank you that one day that curse will be lifted fully and the curtain will be thrown back and we will see the goodness and the glory of Christ and we will be brought into his presence so forevermore to be with the Lord. But between now and then, comfort every person finds themselves wondering about the goodness, faithfulness, and love of God. Help them to stand firm wherever their feet are because the foundation of the Lord is righteous and just. It cannot move. No matter what comes our way, the Lord and His ways and His plan are not so.